Thanks for listening to the Secular Hubcast, a podcast made possible through a grant from the American Humanist Association. This show is a project of the Secular Hub, a Denver nonprofit organization dedicated to promoting community, altruism, reason, and education across the diverse secular community of the Front Range region. For more information and to become a member, visit secularhub.org. Hello and welcome to the Secular Hubcast. This is Jesse Gilbertson. The audio you are about to enjoy was recorded September 7th, 2019 at the Secular Hub. The event held there was a Freedom From Religion event put on by the local Denver chapter. They had invited Andrew Seidel out to speak to the community. Andrew Seidel works for the National Freedom From Religion Foundation as their Director of Strategic Response, and he's also an author. Andrew's new book is the Founding Myth, Why Christian Nationalism is Un-American. And he came out to speak and be part of the community. And this event held at the Secular Hub also turned out to be a fundraiser for the Freedom From Religion Foundation. What you're about to hear is an actual recording of the event. And so there are a couple of introductions by local members of the Freedom From Religion Foundation. They give some good news about what's going on in the world of secularism and do a very nice introduction to what Andrew Seidel is doing and why he was invited out. A brief warning, there was a slight technical malfunction at the beginning. It does create some audio disturbances, but they're pretty minor. But they are not a problem once Andrew starts talking, and that's right around the 10-minute mark. So if you want to just hear Andrew, jump to 10 minutes. But if you want to hear the whole event, please continue to listen, and thank you for tuning in. Okay, I think I'm going to get started with announcements and housekeeping issues. How many of you are new here today? Oh, great. Well, I'll introduce myself. My name is Claudette St. Pierre, and I am the chapter president for the Freedom From Religion Foundation Metro Denver chapter. We have a couple of our other leadership team members here. Joel is our public relations social media coordinator. We have Hunter, he's our treasurer, and then Becky is our secretary, and we want to welcome you here. I also, on behalf of the Secular Hub, I just want to say thank you for letting us utilize this space. For those of you that are not familiar with this location, the Secular Hub is a physical space, but it's also a secular nonprofit that was founded, Barb, correct me if I'm wrong. 2013, so six, a little over six years ago, to have a place where people could meet, like-minded individuals where we could host events, and this is our, our location. We've kind of outgrown the space, and I think we're going to be at standing room only at, at some point here. There's two chairs right here in the second row. Well, maybe now there's only one, one seat. <laughs> But I want to welcome you and thank you for coming. Couple things, please make sure your cell phones are on silent or turned off. And then the other thing I want to mention, I just want to talk a little bit about Freedom From Religion Foundation. How many of you are familiar with the organization? How many of you are national members of the organization? Woohoo! How many of you are paid local chapter members? Ooh. We might have some work to do there. For those of you that are not familiar with the Freedom From Religion Foundation, it was founded over 40 years ago by Annie Laurie Gaylor and her mother, Ann Nicole Gaylor, as a way to combat the intrusion of religious religion and Christianity and the church into state issues. And to this day, they continue to fight for that. Um, Annie Laurie Gaylor and her uh, co-president, Dan Barker, <laughs> I was like, what's that? Run the organization, and they have nine staff attorneys that work really hard. Ten now? Ten now? Ten now? Oh, wow. Ten staff attorneys. Woohoo! That work really hard to maintain that separation of church and state by writing letters, by... <laughs> by 
um, doing debates and advertisement and also uh, meeting with legislators and then litigating as well. And so we're really fortunate today to be able to host Andrew Seidel, who will um, talk a little bit about his book and some of the things about the founding myth. But I just want to talk about one win that just recently happened with FFRF. They were able to persuade the Fresno, California Unified School District to replace an official school chaplaincy program with a secular alternative. The chaplaincy program had been in partnership with the Fresno Police Department and the Fresno Police Chaplaincy. The school district was paying $65,000 a year to the Fresno Police Chaplaincy in order to bring the chaplains into district elementary schools. But not anymore. Yay. The other thing that I think is important to know what Freedom From Religion Foundation does is they have a multitude of scholarships that they provide to free-thinking students. FFRF awarded 10000 in scholarship money to four students chosen by the Black Skeptics of Los Angeles, an African-American atheist community-based group. And then they also gave 20850 to the Students of Color essay competition for college students. And then they also have a multitude of other uh, scholarships that they give out. The other thing that FFRF does is, if you've seen those Ron Reagan ads, have any of you ever seen those? Um, I'm an atheist and I'm not afraid of burning in hell. Well, there's the, that ad is going to run again starting Monday, September 9th, through Thursday, September 12th, and Monday, September 16th, through Thursday, September 19th, on um, Comedy Central's The Daily Show with Trevor Noah. So if you're up that late, it broadcasts at 11 p.m., you can watch that. The other thing that they do is they have a TV show called Free Thought Matters, and it's on in various local communities across the U.S., well, it's actually shown here in Denver at 7 a.m. on Sundays on the CW Channel 2. So if you're up at 7 tomorrow morning, you can watch it. We're trying to compete with the church service. Yes. <laughs> and then last but not least, I just want to tell you a little bit about the convention that happens annually. It's going to be held this year, October 18th through the 20th, in Madison, Wisconsin, at their headquarters it's a great opportunity to hear some great free-thinking speakers and also to get together with other like-minded individuals. And they have Andrew is going to be speaking, Isaac Kramnik, Mandisa Thomas. She's with the Black Nonbelievers Association Black non group. Yep. Hemat Mehta, Trey Crowder, Sarah Vowell, and then also, what is the, the woman, Betty's? Betty Bowers. Betty Bowers. Yeah. Ah, I know. So you can't miss it. But those are just a few things I wanted to bring up so that you can keep informed. And now I'm going to turn it over to Joel, who will provide the in introduction. Hi, my name is Joel Brown. I'm the director of public relations here at the local chapter, the Denver chapter for the Freedom From Religion Foundation. And I'm happy to see so many people here today. Um, I manage the uh, Facebook page, uh, meetup group, and our website, denverffrf.org. So you can check any of those three pages, three pages to see uh, which events we're hosting throughout the year. Um, I'm honored today to introduce Andrew Seidel. Andrew Seidel works as a constitutional attorney at the National Organization of the Freedom From Religion Foundation, litigating cases involving religion and the Constitution. He has appeared on many talk shows, and we're grateful to have him here with us today. Uh, his book, The Founding Myth, came out in April of this year. I pre-ordered my copy in December, and I was <laughs> eagerly awaiting it this spring. Since then, I've bought four copies for my, for my grandfather, my dad, and sister, and I would recommend it to anyone. So, uh, Re recommend buying four copies. <laughs> That's what he was recommending, just so we're all clear. 
So we're honored to have Andrew with us today. A little bit about the format of his presentation. He's going to speak with us for about 20 to 30 minutes, and then he'll be, uh, then we'll move on to Q&A, uh, where Andrew will take questions from the audience. And his book will also be for sale over to my left, and he's gonna hang around afterwards to sign copies. So, Andrew. Thank you. Thank you, Joel. Thank you very much. Christian nationalism is a threat to our secular government, to a government of the people, for the people, and by the people. That is why I wrote The Founding Myth. How many people know what Christian nationalism is? Yeah, so for those of you who don't, Christian nationalism is the idea that the United States was founded as a Christian nation, that we are based on Judeo-Christian principles, and that somehow our nation has strayed from those foundations. And Christian nationalists use the language of return, that we have to get back to our godly roots, that we have to get back to our religious founding to justify all manner of public policy today. Now, the real end goal of Christian nationalism is to make Christians a favored class and everybody else second-class citizens. So that to be an American is to be a Christian, and to be a Christian is to be an American. Now, before the 2016 election, Christian nationalism was an impotent sideshow. Right? This was on, it was on the, conservative, the fringes of conservative politics and on the fringes of conservative religion. It didn't really have a good grip on power. You would hear lip service paid to it, especially during the primaries for one of the two major parties. You would hear it occasionally uh, from a, one or two judges on the federal judiciary. It worked its way into a few court opinions from the Supreme Court, actually. But nothing too serious. But that all changed in 2016. The number one predictor, the number one predictor of a Trump voter in the 2016 election was not their political party. It was not their religion, despite how much you've heard about evangelicals supporting Trump. It was not their race or whether or not they were a racist. The number one predictor, best predictor of a Trump voter in the 2016 election was believing that the United States was founded as a Christian nation. If a person believed that, they were almost certainly going to vote for Trump. Donald Trump tapped into this undercurrent of Christian nationalism in a way we have never seen. And he wrote it into the most powerful office in the land, in the world. And since then, he and Mike Pence and Betsy DeVos and the rest of the Christian nationalists have been using that power to realize the goals of Christian nationalism. And you, whether you know it or not, you are seeing this. The Muslim ban, that is a Christian nationalist policy. It didn't only ban immigration from certain Muslim-majority countries, it also favored immigration for Christians. How many people knew that? The child separation policy at the border. The White House justified that with Romans 13. They learned to justify it with that Bible verse in the White House Bible study. Project Blitz. How many people have heard of Project Blitz? Good, good, good. I'm getting excited because more and more of my talks, more and more hands are going up for Project Blitz. So it's... Education is working. Project Blitz is a explicitly Christian nationalist push. Uh, they, this, a bunch of different groups got together and they wrote a handbook. And I'm not, this is not metaphor. They, it's a literal handbook. You can download a copy of it. And their goal is to have state legislatures around the country pass laws that forward the Christian nationalist legal agenda. And the first few laws are things like displaying in God we trust in the public schools. How many people have heard about one of those laws recently? Yeah. Um, getting in God we trust on license plates. Uh, having a Christian Heritage Week, a resolution passed for things like that. So the initial laws are all sort of these ceremonial things. And then they have actually four different tiers in their latest handbook. And the last tier is... Christians get a right to discriminate because they're Christians against LGBTQ, and as we know, that's not going to stop there. It's going to continue on from there. So these, these Christian nationalist policies are working their way 
into the government at every level. Uh, the opposition to gay marriage, LGBTQ rights, almost exclusively Christian nationalist. All of the laws that you were seeing passed around the country a few months back, seeking to revoke a woman's right to choose, Christian nationalism. So this is a major problem. But there's also good news. And the good news is that the political theology of Christian nationalism, it is dependent on this common well of myths and lies. And it's things that you have heard about. Um, it's things that I expose in the founding myth, like in God we trust, like we are one nation under God, that the founders were all Christians, that they prayed at the Constitutional Convention, that George Washington got down on his knees in prayer at Valley Forge. All these things, all these ideas contribute to the Christian nationalist push. And they do it because it's all about that language of return, right? We're getting back to what the founders wanted. We're getting back to those religious roots. So if you can undermine all of those ideas, you can undermine their entire historical identity. Without that historical support, many of their policy justifications begin to wither and fade. The entire political and ideological reality that they have is incredibly weak and vulnerable because it is based on this common well of lies and myths. And so that is the purpose of the founding myth. It is a simple, if lofty, goal. I am trying to utterly destroy the Christian nationalist identity. <laughs> now, it's not simply a refutation of the idea that we were founded as a Christian nation, because that is, that's not enough. Uh, how many, well, how many people have ever gotten into a debate about whether or not we're founded as a Christian nation? In person, online, Thanksgiving dinner, maybe. Um, there tends to be a fallback claim that you hear pretty quickly. I think most people probably can make a good argument that we're not based, that we're not a Christian nation. But the fallback argument is then, well, what I really meant is that we're based on Judeo-Christian principles. So that's actually the argument that I wanted to explore in this book. So the central question I ask is, did Judeo-Christian principles positively influence the founding of the United States of America? And the answer to that is no, they didn't. And in fact, it's a good thing they didn't, because those principles, those Judeo-Christian principles, and especially the ones that are central to Christian nationalism, are so fundamentally opposed to the principles on which the United States was built, that it is fair to say, albeit bluntly, that Christianity is un-American. So that is the argument that I make in the founding myth. And it also, it happens to be the truth, so I've got that going for me. <laughs> now, <clears throat> how many former churchgoers we have here today? Ooh, I apologize, we are gonna have some readings today. <laughs> Hopefully nobody has any episodes, flashbacks or anything. So the, the book is organized into four different parts. And the first part of the book is sort of our pre-constitutional history. It deals with all the myths that, came, that are relied on from before there was a constitution. Um, the idea that the colonies were founded by people seeking religious liberty. Uh, the idea that all the founders were Christian, so therefore we are a Christian nation. Uh, the idea that the Declaration of Independence is this great Christian document when, in fact, it's an anti-biblical document. Uh, so I'm going to do a few, I'm going to do one reading from each part of these four parts, uh, and then I will kind of wrap up and take some of your questions. And the first part, part one, is, to me, it's one of the most important parts, and especially when we're talking about the Founding Fathers, because how many, how many people have gotten into or have posted a meme on social media about the religion of the Founding Fathers? Go ahead, it's okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a super fun debate to have. I could talk about it for hours, especially if you get me a nice glass of whiskey, I could talk about it for days. It's, it's really fun, but it actually has nothing to do with the question that we are talking about here, whether or not America is a Christian nation or whether or not we're founded on Judeo-Christian principles. So, though interesting, the battle over what the founders personally believed is irrelevant to the claim that our nation was founded on Judeo-Christian principles. That the founders had personal beliefs about a religion and God does not prove that they used those principles to found a nation. Those religious beliefs must be examined 
and compared against the principles that informed our constitutional design. To argue that the founders were Christian is irrelevant because it does not answer the ultimate question about Christianity's influence on America's founding. And even if, even if the founders were all Christian, and this fallacious logic held, we know that they never cited biblical principles during the Constitutional Convention and ratifications. They never did. So it's a really fun debate to have, and I actually, even though I say it's irrelevant, I also get into it because <laughs> you can't avoid it. Um, but it's, it's, it's beside the point. And I think when we engage on this topic, rather than saying, okay, we'll point to the principle that you think informed our constitutional design or the design of our government, we're actually losing the battle right away. So the second part of the book is called United States v. the Bible, because I'm a lawyer and a nerd, and lawyers don't have a sense of humor, even though we think we're funny. So it's like, you know, it's supposed to be a case name. Um, I know it's not funny. You don't have to laugh. I don't want your pity laughs. Um, and in this part, what I actually do is go through those principles that you can find in the Bible. And I compare them to our founding principles. And remember, what I'm trying to show is that there's this fundamental disconnect. That there's, these are two absolutely conflicting systems so that you could not have one influence the other. And so I look at things like the idea of hell and compare that to well, the Eighth Amendment, which prohibits cruel and unusual punishment. Or the idea of original sin uh, and things along those lines. I also get into the golden rule, uh, which is kind of a fun one, mostly because it's not Christian. Um, so this is from chapter 10. This is kind of the central thrust for me. Uh, chapter 10 is called Redemption and Original Sin or Personal Responsibility and the Presumption of Innocence. <clears throat> the American system of justice and government and perhaps our entire society rest on the principle that, our people, that people are personally responsible for their actions. The entire Christian religion is based on a singular claim that violates that principle of personal responsibility. The idea that Jesus died for your sins. Christianity's rejection of personal responsibility is actually twofold. First, a, a person is guilty of original sin simply because they were born. To believe this, you must accept not only that all humans descended from two originals that a God created for his garden, but also that all human beings are culpable for the actions of those two forebears whose disobedience was prompted by a talking snake and was committed millennia ago. Guilt without action is rare under our system of law, but it is the law in much of Christianity. Second, the sacrifice of Jesus means that one's sins are forgiven. This is vicarious redemption through human sacrifice. Jesus as a sacrificial scapegoat. Each idea is repugnant to the American system in its own way. Original sin confers guilt without regard for personal actions, while vicarious redemption absolves that guilt through the torture and murder of another human being. So hopefully that gives you a flavor of this fundamental disconnect that I'm trying to do here. Part three of the book is, it's where the book began. Uh, this started as a law review article that just got really, really out of hand. <laughs> and part three is all about the Ten Commandments. Um, I was in, actually here at the University of Denver in a religion and the law class while I was getting my LLM and <clears throat> reading through a couple of cases from 2005 that the Supreme Court decided about Ten Commandments monuments up on government property. There's a Ten Commandments monument right here in Denver as well. Uh, the court said that the Ten Commandments were the basis of American law and justice, and I thought, that can't be right. And I'm, I'm going to look at that, and I'm actually going to do a comparison here, and that's going to be my law review article. And it ended up becoming this book because I got way, as I said, got way out of hand. I get excited about these issues. So part three compares every one of the Ten Commandments to America's founding principles. And what I found when I started that investigation for the law review, I expected to have to concede a lot of influence here, right? There's those commandments that have a lot of overlap with some of our criminal laws, but it turns out the answer is no. Really, all of those commandments are fundamentally 
opposed uh, to American system of law and justice, even the ones that you're thinking of right now. But you have to buy the book to find out about them. <laughs> I, I'm going to read from a different section for part three. Can't give it all away. So chapter 13 begins part three, and it's called Which Ten? The Ten Commandments, also known as the Decalogue, supposedly the most moral law known to humanity, and supposedly authored by the biblical God himself, are not easy to find in a Bible. They're not at the beginning of the Bible. God didn't give the rules to Eve and Adam even after their fall. Nor did he give them to Noah after exterminating all human and animal life save Noah's crew. And Noah needed a bit of moral guidance. Noah's son, Ham, accidentally walks in on Noah drunk, naked, and passed out. Refusing to take responsibility for his frat boy behavior, Noah curses an innocent child, Canaan, Ham's son, and Noah's own grandson. Let that sink in, Noah's own grandson, to a life of slavery for Ham's crime of seeing Noah naked. This was the only man the Jewish God thought moral enough to save from a worldwide flood. Yahweh did not see fit to give out the laws, his most moral laws, if Christian nationalists are to believe, until much further along in the biblical storyline. The first set, there are four, don't appear until halfway through the second book of the Bible, Exodus. H.L. Mencken reportedly once quipped, say what you will about the Ten Commandments. You must always come back to the pleasant fact there are only ten of them. Now, if this wit does indeed belong to Mencken, so does the Arab. There are not Ten Commandments, but four different sets of Ten Commandments. And it's not just four different sets in any given Bible. Then different religions interpret those commandments differently. And these may seem like small differences to us now, but there's no such thing as a small religious difference. Right? The difference between not being able to kill and not being able to murder is the difference between being able to defend yourself at night when somebody breaks into your house and not. The difference between not making graven images and not making idols is, I don't actually know what, who, who cares, but, but the Christian church went to war with itself over this idea. It literally split Christendom in half. There was a civil war about this during the 8th and 9th centuries called the Iconoclast Controversy, right? There's no such thing as a small religious difference. So, that's part three. Uh, that's where the book started, and it got out of hand. Part four is sort of the opposite of part three. Part four is the part that I'm bitter that I even had to write. The arguments that I'm rebutting are so bad. I'm kind of like, why did I have to waste my time on this? But you absolutely have to waste your time on it. This is the stuff that you probably hear the most. In God we trust, one nation under God, so help me God, all that fun nonsense. Um, so this is called, part four I titled Argument by Idiom or American Verbiage, and I re rebut all of that. So just a little bit from the conclusion here. In God we trust, one nation under God, God bless America. These tidbits are not historical so much as they are rhetorical. Their tardiness precludes arguments that they somehow prove the founding ideology. But it is worth analyzing how the verbiage entered the American vernacular, because doing so reveals something interesting about Christian nationalism. Christian nationalists take advantage of times of fear and national crisis and use them to impose their God on everyone else. And when doing so, they often destroy earlier unifying messages. Now, Christian nationalists ignore this logic, and they cite these religious idioms, each more delinquent relative to the founding than the next, to bolster their argument. In each instance, the truant language entered our vernacular during times of fear and national crisis, during a war in one case, and then another case, at a time when witch hunters were looking for nonconformists and non-Christians, while big business was peddling religion to repeal New Deal regulations. In the final instance, the intent was to cover the most notorious presidential crimes ever committed. I wrote that before the Mueller report was published. <laughs> so grain of salt on that one. But this is what makes the founding myth different because previous books have offered that gentle correction to the Christian nationalist. 
You know, guys, here's what, here's what history really tells us. Here's what the founders actually said, and here's what they actually meant when they said that. But correction is not enough, because sadly, facts are not enough. If they were, we would not have a President Trump right now. So pointing out errors is insufficient. So this book does that, but then it takes the next step. This book goes on the offensive. This is an assault on Christian nationalism. Not only are Christian nationalists wrong, but their beliefs and identity runs counter to what is truly American. In fact, they are un-American. Thank you, and I'm happy to take questions for quite a while. So Jess, if you have a question, Jesse will come to you with the mic and ask it into the mic so everybody can hear. Yeah, hello. Um, I see our first contestant over here. <laughs> hey, Andrew. Hello. Uh, thank you for coming out. First My pleasure. Um, I'm so excited my face could almost melt off. Seriously. <laughs> and when, it, when you said that thing. Are you going to leave that as an Amazon review? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> this, um, but when you said the thing at the end, I mean, I was already excited, coffee, whatever. <laughs> when you said the thing at the end about the assault that really raised my spirits, it's amazing you wrote this book this year. Because I've been reading a bunch of different books on this subject, and then suddenly a person involved with the FFR wrote this book. And as I've been reading these books, at one point I had this I had this thing where it was in a book by Sean Faircloth from the the uh, Attack American of the Theocrats Secular Coalition. Yeah, and had this instance where I was like, "Oh my God, I'm actually proud to be an American." Like, yeah. And it's been a long time since I felt like that. You know, when I when I started reading this, it was just that I wanted to be able to refute. Yeah. You know, but then I suddenly had this sensation of actually being proud to be an American, which I haven't felt in a really long time. And so, sorry. The question is, how do we let people know we have the good news? Yeah. No, I'm I'm thrilled. I'm thrilled to hear you say that because that really is one of the points of the book. Uh, you know, if, if people only come away with one thing from the book, I would rather it be that patriotism has no religion than anything else. I think nowadays we think of being a proud American has like MAGA hat wearing connotations, and we need to absolutely take that back. Uh, I mean, <clears throat> the United States was the first nation in the history of the world to separate state and church. And this is a fundamentally, uniquely American contribution to political science. The, the idea was around before, but it was first implemented in the American experiment. And I am proud of that fact. I think every American ought to be proud of that fact. And that's what we ought to be fighting for, not these Christian nationalists instead shoving their agenda down our throats using the machinery of the state. Uh, so patriotism has no religion is a big message of this book and that we do have a, as much a better claim to that American tradition than, than they do. Um, they've been very, very successful at subverting that. I think a lot of people in this room, when they hear proud to be an American or patriot, something like that, there's a actual, a physical revulsion in some cases. And I, I totally get that. And that's one of the things that I'm, I'm really trying to push back again. And that's why I use the word un-American to describe them. Um, I went back and forth with myself for a while before officially and settling on that. But, and I get why like, you might be uncomfortable. Some people might. It's, it's a value judgment. It's, it's a value judgment built into that word. But we are in a fight for our values right now. America is in its, a fight for its values. And if we don't engage on that level, we are going to lose. And I sa I've said in the introduction here that facts are not enough. That's the second part of this. It, this is supposed to be a punch in the gut to the other side, right? Facts are not going to convince them or stop them, but engaging at a visceral, emotional level might. And hitting them where they think they are most entitled, they are, they are Americans and we are not, is, I think, absolutely critical to winning this fight. So thank you very much for saying that. Appreciate it. I saw a hand go up here, but we'll get some more. In light of the Brandenburg Cross case, how does the FFRF intend to fight against any sort of Christian monuments on public land? Yeah, so the Bladensburg Cross case, for people who don't know, is the case that was just decided a couple months ago. The Supreme Court upheld a 90-year-old, 40-foot-tall concrete Christian cross on government land maintained with hundreds of thousands of dollars in taxpayer money. 
It is absolutely a wrong decision. It's one of the dumbest decisions I've ever read from the Supreme Court, which is, that's saying something. The, the majority opinion said, uh, look, yeah, it's a, it's a Christian cross. It's a monument to Christian nationalism, basically, but it's also not religious. Uh, what? Then they said, also, it's 90 years old. We have no idea what they were thinking of when they put this up. They might, we, we can't possibly know what they were thinking 90 years ago. Justice Alito wrote that, that part of it. And in the, next, in the next section, he goes on to say, and we know exactly what the founders were thinking 230 years ago when they drafted the Constitution and the First Amendment. Right? I mean, it's, there's, it's, it's the worst, it's such a poorly reasoned decision. What they actually did was elevate history over principle. And then their history is just shitty. It's bad history. It's not right. There's a lot that is just factually erroneous. Uh, they have a Sam Adams quote in there that is not a quote from Sam Adams. I mean, it's recorded in John Adams' diary as saying, Sam Adams said this, but it's not an actual quote. Um, there's, there's a lot that's wrong with it. I actually, I had a law review accepted for publication before that decision came down. And as soon as it came down, I changed a big chunk of the law review to rip into Alito much of what I'm saying is said there, but a little more eloquently, I hope. Um, it, but, it's, but in terms of how we're going to fight back against it right now, which, is, which was your question, uh, I mean, we've been pushing away from federal, federal courts anyway, because by the time Trump and McConnell are done, we'll be lucky if they don't crack 200 judges in the federal system. Um, so we've been going towards state decisions anyway, and that's an effective strategy. Uh, how many people saw the North Carolina gerrymandering decision recently? Okay, yeah, so Supreme Court made the dumbest decision, I'm, I'm saying that a lot lately, <laughs> on, on partisan gerrymandering uh, back in June. They said, uh, this is oversimplification, but basically John Roberts said, look, gerrymandering and drawing political districts is a political question. The courts can't get involved in it. But your whole point is that you, your vote is gone because of partisan gerrymandering. So it's like they're taking away the very th solution that you are saying is how we solve this problem. Do you see what's wrong here, John Roberts? Um, so the state courts stepped in, North Carolina state courts stepped in, and they did the right thing. And it was a phenomenal opinion, um, like for almost 400 pages. They basically wrote a book striking down partisan gerrymandering. Um, so we're going to be doing a lot more of that anyway. Um, it, the Bladensburg Cross decision, unfortunately, is already having a massive impact. It's been used by uh, the Lehigh County case that FFRF brought. This was a cross on a seal. Um, as soon as Bladensburg Cross decision came down, the Third Circuit said, yeah, that seal's totally fine, even though it's got a Christian cross. There's another cross in, the, in Florida, a case that I'm not optimistic about. Center for Inquiry brought a case in Texas uh, challenging the ban on using secular celebrants to solemnize your marriage. Has to be either a judge or a religious uh, figure of some kind. And the court cited to the Bladensburg Cross saying again, look, this is how we've done it historically. They're elevating history over principle. Which is the good news on all of this is to say those decisions are not going to stand. Um, they're, they're so poorly reasoned and so clearly political that they are going to fall at some point. I just don't know when. Um, until then, we're gonna, we're absolutely gonna keep fighting and we have a number of other avenues open to us. FFRF just hired our first full-time lobbyist a couple months ago. So we're gonna be doing a lot more lobbying as well. Yeah, that's, that's absolutely. Yeah, so. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, I see you. Um, is there a lady? Oh, here we are. <laughs> I'm indeed a lady. Um, which do you think is probably worse for us right now, the Bladensburg or the Trinity Lutheran? And does the Trinity Lutheran spill into the like the adoption? And so the Trinity Lutheran decision was a case where the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court essentially said that uh, religious outfits, organizations can have a right to access um, taxpayer-funded programs that are open to everyone. And that was a huge departure from what the court has historically said. There's another case that the court accepted cert 
that means they agreed to hear the case, which is even more alarming, which is it's this uh, Montana case about these, this Neo Voucher program, which would crack that door even open even wider. Um, the real the real scary part is that the court is taking these cases that are they're really bad for the court to take. Um, in that historically, a Supreme Court would never reach out and take it. So in the in the Trinity Lutheran case, the state of Missouri and the Trinity Lutheran Church agreed by the time the case reached the Supreme Court. The state said, you know what, you're right, we're going to give you access to this funding program. You can resurface your playgrounds with these, this rubberized tire thing that we're doing. So there was no controversy. The parties actually agreed in the case. There's, there's no reason the Supreme Court should have even been hearing it. But they still agreed to take it and decide it, even though that was the case, which is, it's, it's actually mind-blowing if you're an attorney practicing this. The, the, the Supreme Court looks for any reason not to decide a case, and here they're going out of their way to decide these cases. And you have something similar happening in the Montana case that they have accepted cert on. Um, there's a chance that they don't decide that case. They can, <clears throat> they can do what's called digging a case, D-I-G, dismissing as improvidently granted, meaning they accepted the case, and now that they've looked at it, they said, eh, we shouldn't have done that, and then they'll kick it back, which is what we're hoping uh, would happen in this one. Um, in terms of the biggest departure from precedent, it's probably the Trinity Lutheran case, but they're both so alarming because there's just a total lack of respect for anything resembling the separation of state and church. And they're both 7-2 decisions. What, say it again. Oh, who are the dissenting judges? Everybody can guess one. Yeah. Notorious. Uh, and Sotomayor was the other one. Yeah. They're, and they're awesome. I mean, their their dissents are going to be law eventually. It's just a question of when. Yes. Any idea how uh, we can get your book into every motel room? In <laughs> I'm, I'm all for that, yeah. I don't know. You guys, did you guys hear that the Bible was exempted from the Chinese tariff war? Yeah. yeah, yeah, because there's there's actually two Bibles for every American in the country, and so we got to make sure we can keep importing them at that rate. Unbelievable. She, this this lady has a question right here. Yeah. I was just wondering, um, when you look at all of these cases, especially the Bladensburg case and um, the Hobby Lobby, some of these things, Hobby Lobby doesn't actually bother me as much if it wasn't for the fact that it sets a precedent for some other mm -hmm. cases. But um, the Bladensburg case really, really kind of upset me. Yeah, it should have. And so I'm thinking, um, in fact, I just bought a book called Atheists and Foxholes. <laughs> so, mm -hmm. um, but I've been told that getting that changed that it, it's not like, like it's permanent, that this decision is permanent and there'll never be an opportunity or a chance to change it. Um, is that your perception? No, no, that's, I mean, that's definitely not the case. Um, so a couple things. One, this Supreme Court has been just trampling all over precedent. And so the, the idea, uh, it's called stare decisis. This is the idea that you have to abide by decisions that have already been decided, right? We don't want the courts deciding the same question over and over and over again. We want them, if it's, it makes sense for them to just do what was already been done. It's pretty rare that they would go and overturn their precedent. But this court has been doing that constantly, just not explicitly. Uh, and they did it in the Bladensburg Cross case. It's actually a very good example of them doing it without saying it. So historically, when courts are deciding state church challenges, there's an argument that the other side always makes, which is, uh, look, if you kick prayer out of our public schools and don't let the school formulate a prayer and use the machinery of the state to impose it on other people's children, you're being hostile to religion, right? So curing the violation of the First Amendment, they argue, is hostile to religion. And the court has laughed that argument off every single time, except in the Bladensburg Cross case. They said that, look, if we were to remove this cross, what would people across the country think? What if that makes the news? I mean, Justice Leto talked about this in oral argument. What would people think when they see on the news a giant cross being torn down? Which is not the only option to fix it, by the way. Um, 
So it's, they, they bought this argument that has been historically rejected and nobody said anything about it. I wrote a piece for Slate to try to get some you know, press on this, but I mean, this, it was a huge, huge turnaround from precedent. Um, and courts can do that all the time. There's no reason that other courts can't, can't reject these decisions, and they will reject these decisions. The quickest turnaround that I know of was um, in 1940, the Supreme Court decided a case called Gobitis, uh, which is about Jehovah's Witnesses refusing to stand to say the Pledge of Allegiance. Um, the court said, oh yeah, you have no right to refuse to stand. They can totally kick you out of school, they can take your kids away from you <laughs> because they're then truant. Uh, and in 1943, the Supreme Court changed its mind in a case called West Virginia Board of Education versus Barnett, which is a great decision, everybody should go read it. Um, there's some really phenomenal language in there. And they said, yes, of course you have a right. Not, the, the, the government cannot compel you to stand and and say the pledge. Um, so it can happen quickly, even. Uh, it's just a question of, of getting it done. Uh, the interesting thing about the Hobby Lobby case, real quick, is that the Hobby Lobby decision is not based on an interpretation of the First Amendment. It's based on an interpretation of the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, RIFRA. So if you repeal RIFRA, which we are actively trying to do, that decision goes away. It has no effect. Um, but the Masterpiece Cake Shop case, all these cases about uh, being able to discriminate against gay couples, uh, photographers, all those different cases, they are trying to take that Hobby Lobby rationale and basically graft it onto the First Amendment. So if the Supreme Court decides one of those cases in that way, they've essentially made the Hobby Lobby rationale the First Amendment rationale, and you can't repeal the First Amendment. I mean, you could, you have to do a constitutional amendment, but so much, much harder when that happens. Yeah. I have a follow-up question. Go for it. Can we put a 90-foot Baphomet statue up? <laughs> Probably not. Probably not, because you're not Christian if you do that. I mean, like, like seriously, it's not, not, if it would have to be old, you'd have to find it one already on government land to, to do it. They don't have mm -hmm. to, under that, under that decision, which is one reason it's such a terrible decision. Yeah, what a mess. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I mean, the, you, can't be, you can't be mean to Christians is effectively a law because that's what the Supreme Court effectively said in the Masterpiece Cake Shop decision. All right. Can we take another question from this side? The government can't be. Instead of just always going after Christian stuff with like an atheist point of view or a secular point of view, what are your thoughts on when they sort of do an um, unintended consequences thing and say, well, what if, uh, you know, Muslim or, you know, sometimes they have the Satanist sort of thing. Mm -hmm. um, is that more or less effective than going the secular route? You know what I'm trying to I, I think I get what you're saying. There's, I mean, there, there's essentially two things. There's kind of two things that happen, and this sort of relates all those questions that were just asked together. I'm, I'm going to answer a question without his, so I, you'll, you'll, all, you'll all be on board with me on this one. There are essentially two effective ways to fight state church separation. So when we're talking about displays uh, in a government forum, so when we're talking about a cross on public land or when the Satanists want to get their monument to veterans up in Belle Plaine, Minnesota, or they want to get the Baphomet statue up in Arkansas, the first step for FFRF is always, look, state and church should be separate. We don't think religion should be using the machinery of the state to promote its message ever, even if the machinery of the state is promoting all religious messages. We still think that the best policy is to have state and church entirely separate. So that's always our first step, and that, that is what it should be. Uh, however, you get into cases where the government says, no, 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 we are letting anybody who wants to come in and do this put up their display or distribute their literature. Um, so a good example of this was in Orange County, Florida. We asked to, or we told them to stop this Bible distribution that was going on every January. And the school refused. And they said, look, this is Religious Freedom Day. And this is all about religious freedom. And if anybody wants to distribute anything to our students, they're perfectly able to do that. Okay. Yeah, so we got, uh, let's see, we got Sam Harris's End of Faith, Letter to a Christian Nation, uh, Thomas Paine, Dan Barker. We also had a bunch of FFRF non-tracks. What does the Bible say about abortion? An X-rated book, which is all the... It's just... It's in, it says an X-rated book, and it's got a little cartoon on the cover, and then all it is is the Bible verses that are about sex. Um, and they banned a bunch of them, including that one. 
that book, that pamphlet is just the Bible, heavily edited, and they allowed the Bible, and they banned this pamphlet. They also banned one of the books because the idea that Jesus did not die and rise from the dead is age inappropriate for children. Yeah, think it through all the way. They let the Bible, which says that Jesus was tortured and murdered and then was a zombie, and that's totally fine and age appropriate, but saying that that didn't happen is age inappropriate. So they banned, a book. it was a book by Dr. Robert Price. Um, so we sued, because that's censorship. Then, then you're in the area where, look, it's unequal treatment. Uh, but the best case scenario there is we get to get in and distribute our stuff. And the whole time we're arguing this case, we're like, oh, you guys can stop this if you just say you're not going to let anybody distribute anything. <laughs> and they finally let us go in and do our thing. We got to distribute everything that we wanted to. And so I hit the big red button on my desk that's got the Satanic Temple emblem on it. <laughs> and and uh, I called my buddy Lucian and said, hey, there's this school district in Florida and they're letting anybody distribute anything. <laughs> and so they, they got their uh, Satanic coloring books, which I, he sent me a whole stack of them when we were doing this together. They're like the best messages you can possibly want kids to take in. It's like, don't bully, treat people who look differently than you the same way you would want to be treated. Like the golden rule is in there. And the school district was like, whoa, nobody can distribute anything anymore in this. Like, which is what we want. Right? And that's, that's the better outcome. So there are times when it's very useful to have, to have this argument and to have that big red button on your desk. Um, but, you know, I mean, the, the end goal should always be keeping state and church separate. And one of the reasons that we, which kind of, I think kind of goes to your, your main question perhaps, is, you know, we often talk about this from a secularist standpoint, from an atheist standpoint, and I think that is a little bit of a mistake sometimes. Because the reason, one of the reasons, separation of state and church was why the founders decided to embark on that experiment was to keep religion more pure as well. Um, you know, James Madison wrote that government and religion will both exist in greater purity the less they're mixed together. And that's actually a really powerful argument, not for us, because religion's nonsense, but for believers, that can be a really, really powerful argument. Uh, and, and making that argument saying that when religion gets involved in this, the day-to-day -day governing of our nation and is used for political gain, look at what Donald Trump is doing, Right? Does anybody really believe that he believes any of that stuff that he talks about? No. He's a narcissist. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, guy, the guy's a narcissist. He absolutely worships himself, if, if anything. And yeah, he is the chosen one. And I mean, you, you can see him degrading that religion. There are a lot of Christians who are pissed about what is happening there. It's a, so it's a powerful argument. I mean, I don't buy it because, but religion's silly. But it, it works, and it's useful, um, and it's one that, that we should make more often. Kind of answer your non-question question? Okay. Okay. I see one over here. Here you go. Um, my question is because about facts. Um, I know that uh, the Supreme Court had a decision that allowed, quote-unquote, crisis pregnancy centers to literally lie to patients. Yeah. But I do not understand why the state is allowed to force actual medical doctors to lie. So, I mean, how do we counter that? Yeah, the, so I wish I was more familiar with the Crisis Pregnancy Center decision. Could you repeat the question? For people who don't know, Crisis Pregnancy Centers are these, they're fake, will help you pregnant woman. Um, and really they just try to encourage the women to have the baby. Um, they don't give out medical advice. They are almost exclusively religious run, religiously run, and they use that religious, that they've been established by a religion to claim free exercise of religion and free speech for what they're doing. And if it's free exercise of religion and free speech, then the government has a much harder time regulating it. Uh, and that, that's where the conflict, uh, was in that case, but there was also a strange turn. So I don't, I really, um, I'm reluctant to pontificate on that case without having read it recently. Um, but it's, I will say this, this whole push that you are seeing right now with religion trying to claim 
these, the right to impose on everybody else is, first of all, it's, it's not new, but it is new in the sense that they're trying to get a new interpretation of the First Amendment. Right? So, First Amendment says that you as a believer, you have the right to believe whatever you want. You can believe that Jesus died and rose from the dead three days later. You can believe that thetans and evil spirits make people sad. You can believe there are talking snakes. You can believe the earth was created 5,000 years ago. Fine. You don't get to act on that belief, necessarily. right? Believe whatever you want, but when you start acting on it, the government can step in. So the question is, where is it appropriate for the government to step in? Where do we draw the line? And the answer has always been when you are violating the rights of somebody else or infringing on the rights of somebody else. There's that old adage, you know, your right to swing your fist ends where my nose begins. Same thing here, your right to swing your religion or your rosary. Pope John Paul II used to apparently self-flagellate to get closer to Jesus. Not my cup of tea, man, but go for it. Self-flagellate all you want, but if you start whipping other people, you don't have a religious right to do that. And the Supreme Court said this back in 1878. They actually used a very obvious example. They used human sacrifice. right? In, in the Bible, Abraham goes to sacrifice Isaac because he thinks God's telling him, God is telling him to do that. If you think God is telling you to kill your child, you don't have a right to act on that, even if it is religiously motivated. Right? It's very, very obvious when you put it into those terms. Your right to act on your religion ends where other people's rights begin. And that includes rights that are protected under civil rights laws, under places of public accommodation laws, things like that. Um, so it's, it's actually it's a pretty easy area of law to grasp. And it's been really, the waters have really, really been muddied by essentially the massive amount of money that the other side has compared to our side on this. I mean, ADF, Alliance Defending Freedom, is the group that brought the case for um, Masterpiece Cake Shop. Their budget is, last time I looked, I think it was between 50 and $60 million a year, which outweighs all of our side combined by a lot. Um, so, I mean, we are, we, are, we are the David in the David and Goliath fight on this one to borrow from the Bible. <laughs> okay, I'll take one more. Here we go. Oh, we're on this side. Hi, Andrew. Um, excited to have you here. Um, Thank you. Real quick, it sounds like the only way to fix, quote-unquote, the Supreme Court is politically, correct? Uh, do you see any other way? And I guess I want your opinion on what you think is we should be telling our reps or who we should be voting for Will that help? Yeah, so, okay, so it's a good question. How do we fix the Supreme Court? What should we be doing? Um, the reluctance to fix the court or to pack the court or to alter the court's number is new, and it is based in the idea that we don't want to politicize the Supreme Court. Yeah, that ship has sailed. It's halfway around the globe. Magellan's at the helm. There's, that is absolutely out, done. Um, and I think to, to continue to rely on that idea is suicidal. Um, so I actually, I, I really do believe people ought to be telling their, their elected officials, like, yes, we need a political fix for this the moment these people are out of office. And not just the Supreme Court, the entire federal judiciary. Um, I mean, it's, it's more alarming the amount of influence they're going to have down there. Um, the Supreme Court's numbers have been changed I'd have to go back and look, but constantly from the founding until the switch in time that saved nine in the 30s, um, when FDR threatened to pack the courts. And then it's, it's been maintained for the most part. Um, the federal judiciary itself, we could, it's already way underfunded and understaffed uh, for the amount of case, for the caseload that is out there. It could easily double in size. <laughs> Just not right now. So, yeah. Hey, Andrew, how, how long are we going with the Queen? You, you guys, you guys, tell me. I want everybody to have a chance to buy books and sell books, and I want to sign books. Just so you all know, we do have books up here. We don't have enough for everyone. 
because we're limited. They are $25 cash, check, or charge, and all the proceeds go towards the national FFRF. Yeah, correct. So on the book tours, I'm donating all the money I would make on the book back to FFRF. Um, so I'm not taking any of that home. So they are a little, they're more expensive than you would get on Amazon, but you're paying for the work that FFRF does if you get them here. So I'm happy to sign it if you bought it on Amazon too, though. Don't feel bad. And if we run out, you should definitely get it on Amazon. Okay. Um, <laughs> People who haven't had chance. Many uh, religious practitioners are emotionally involved and a book like yours or any kind of reason or rational thought is it really going to affect those people so yeah what do you think is so who, right who is the audience for the book might be the question you think that's fair yeah. yeah i mean i'm writing to two people basically two types of people you i one one real goal here is to give secular americans non-religious americans atheist americans better arguments to fight back against christian nationalism uh, because again facts are not enough so what I really tried to do here was use being a lawyer who argues for a living to give you the same arguments that I know work in this area. So one, give you guys a better toolkit. Two, I'm writing to the middle portion of the country that is often undecided on issues like this, that maybe doesn't see Christian nationalism as the threat that it is. And I'm trying to wake them up to this threat and at the same time, show them why it's so very, very wrong. So am I, <clears throat> I'm not trying to convince Christian nationalists with this book. That said, I have. There are, I've had a few people reach out to me on social media saying, I never, I never knew any of this stuff. I mean, Christian nationalism is a, like all religion, is this closed information system. It survives because it's a closed information system. And if you can get new information in there, like, Washington actually didn't pray in the snow at Valley Forge. There's no evidence for that. We know the guy who made that up made up all kinds of other stories. Same as the same guy who did the chopping up down of the cherry tree. I can't tell a lie. Same guy. Um, so it, it can still work. But that's not, they weren't my, my primary audience on this. Um, anyway, I think, good? Yeah, I've, uh, I may run for office someday. I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, I'm con I've been considering it more and more. Last question. No, <laughs> One last question. Money. Anything about I'll take it. getting the tax-exempt status of religious organizations on the way with? Yeah, the, the, the tax-exempt status of churches has been upheld in the Supreme Court uh, already um, a long time ago. There's... I think there's good reasons and good ways to possibly get that done in the future. Um, it's going to be a long way off before that happens. I think it likely will happen at some point for the actual churches and stuff themselves. Um, they should still be exempt for, like, as if a church runs a soup kitchen. Fine. That's, that's actual charity work that you're doing. Um, but <clears throat> I don't know it's going to happen in my lifetime. Uh, I'm not. I'm not optimistic there. But I'll tell you this. Let I me mean, end with with two thoughts. One, we are not going to win this fight with the law. We're going to win this fight with demographics. I say that as a lawyer who does this for a living. We the, we cannot rely on the courts. Even before Trump and McConnell successfully destroyed the federal judiciary, we could not rely on the courts. The Supreme Court is not the great defender of civil rights that we often are taught or think of it as. Uh, one of my law professors, this image has stuck with me, I say it all the time, uh, law professors likened the Supreme Court to the last person in on an all-team tackle, right? Running backs has the ball, everybody on the other side jumps on him, and then the Supreme Court comes running along, dives on top of the pile, says, look what I did. <laughs> they don't lead on these issues. They never have, well, that's, I shouldn't say never have. The Warren Court is the big exception. Uh, during the war in years, massive strides in civil rights, the Supreme Court did lead. Um, you want a good example, gay marriage. Um, the court could have done the right thing on gay marriage 15 times maybe uh, before waiting until 
public opinion had shifted in favor of it, and then going ahead and finally doing what the Constitution very clearly dictated. So Supreme Court's not the bastion of civil rights that we think it is. We're going to win this fight with demographics. And that is why you are seeing this massive push on Christian nationalism right now. That is why you're seeing things like Project Blitz right now. They are raging against the dying of their privilege. They can look out, they look out on Sunday mornings and instead of seeing smiling young faces, they see empty pews. They can read the demographic studies as well as we can. They know what is coming. And what they are trying to do is codify their privilege while they still have the power. And they're doing a good job of it right now. They're doing massive damage. Um, I think at this point we are absolutely still at a spot where we can recover from that damage. I don't know how long it will take. I, I certainly think it's possible. Um, if things don't change four years from now or six years from now, then we'll be in a much, much different spot, I think. But right now, this is absolutely a fight that we can and will win. I think I'll leave it at that then. Thank you. Thank you.